Let's just begin our meditation with that. If you'll just close your eyes and repeat with me and with Tui and with your brothers and sisters silently to yourself that single phrase, more love. And as you repeat it, join with your Father who is love and your brothers and sisters who are love and become more love and more love and more love as you say it over and over and over from your heart. You heard a child say it. When do we wake up? When do we open our eyes? <laughs> that is the question. Now, as I told you, this is a question and answer day, and uh, I have a few questions that people have uh, asked beforehand, have written in. So I'm going to cover just a few of those, and then uh, those of you who have the temerity uh, <laughs> will then be able to uh, ask a question if you'd like to. Uh, as I uh, told you, I'm, uh, I haven't fully recovered, um, and so I can't promise you exactly what will happen during this period. Uh, up here at the podium, uh, I have a cup of. I'm armed with a, armed with a couple of glasses of water here, uh, and um, oh, there's a very interesting phenomenon that takes place in healing. I'm going to have the audacity myself to speak of healing, uh, since that was one of the questions. There's a very interesting phenomenon that takes place in healing. Many of you are familiar with it. In the forming of a holy relationship, which is not as easy as most people think, but when it does begin, one of the things that happens very often is that the two people get sick at the same time. Uh, I don't, it's, I think it's the ego's way of joining. The Course says that the Course says that your ego thinks that it's going to get to go along on this journey that you're taking, you see. And I believe that this is this is what it feels uh, is its way of participating. This is its way of, of being one. The other um, phenomenon is that as you begin to heal, and you will find that you will be able to heal others more easily than you'll be able to heal yourself. Uh, but you will, of course, also begin, and it's always good to begin as soon as you can, making attempts to heal yourself. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But as you heal others, you will go through a stage, just as your holy relationship goes through a stage, in which you will temporarily take on the illness of the person that you have healed. This is nothing to be afraid of because it only lasts for a short period of time. That's the difference. It is, you take on the illness, but you will only have it. You may take on polio, for example, but you will only have it for a few days or so, and then it will just sort of pass away. You can call this psychosomatic or whatever you wish. Then, as you pass that stage, you will, um, of course, not, not do that any longer. Um, 
But so that you will get a sense of this, uh, in case I do cough, I won't ask you to do the other things that I may do, but in case I do cough this morning, uh, you could join with me. It, it, it would be sort of like a responsive reading, you see. As a matter of fact, I will cough now, and, and you can cough, and we'll, you'll, we'll, we'll have a little practice session. <coughs> that, that's right. No church has the right to be this silly. This is not right. Yeah. So let's talk first a little bit about healing. Before you will be able to replace peace with illness, before you will be able to make the simple and clear choice for peace instead of illness, you must first choose to be at peace while you are ill. This is a necessary first step. And the second step should not be attempted until you can attempt it with absolutely no fear and with complete confidence that you will succeed. And I would imagine that very few here today are at that stage. And so the stage where most of us are today is we must be at peace while we are sick. This shortens the, the length of the illness and makes it more enjoyable. And it keeps you from losing your purpose because your purpose is to walk home. As you put your key in your door and come home at night, that is your purpose. As you turn on the uh, 6 o'clock news, or 5 o'clock, whenever it's being shown. As you go to bed. As you uh, eat your cornflakes. Your purpose is to walk home. As you clean up the carton of eggs that you spilled. And, and dismiss the French toast that you had your, your heart set on. Your single purpose is to walk home. If you are late for the appointment, that is your purpose. And so, of course, it must be your purpose if you're sick. That means that you must not ask yourself, when will this be over? You certainly must not ask yourself, why am I sick? And this is the number one error, as far as I can tell, in the spiritual movement, is people try to assign meaning to their illness. And they torture themselves with trying to figure out why they got sick. Do you see what this does? It makes the illness real. Because if it has a cause, it is a fact. And if God is the only cause, illness has no meaning. And it has no cause. And there isn't anything for you to figure out. There is only the peace of God for you to practice. At the same time, you will have genuine insights from time to time as you go along as to what you are afraid of, what fear is behind this particular illness. I do not know what particular fear is behind uh, this particular illness. But the last 
two or three things that have happened to me, it was very clear to me. And because it was clear to me, and I did not ask what was there, but it was just there as I meditated. I was not asking. It just came into my thought. Oh, I am afraid of so-and-so. So I must forgive that situation. That, of course, helped immensely with the healing to have that insight. I'm not having that insight on this particular illness because it would not be of help to me at my stage of learning to know what I'm afraid of. It would probably make me more afraid to even know it. (laughs) So let the insight come and let the insight not come. And you concern yourself only with enjoying yourself. If you say to yourself, I cannot be happy, I cannot continue my walk home until the illness is over, do you see the time you waste? And what is the point of that? Another question, let me say one more thing about healing. As to how you heal. And this can be said in so many ways. You might say that there are two stages and learning how to heal. Well, let's say there are three stages. The one, the first stage is the one I just spoke of, in which is, in which is you relax and you're at peace and you are sick in the present and you're sick in peace. That's the first stage. The second one might be described in this way And we've spoken about this, but it's been a long time. It's been about a year since I used this analogy. In mnemonics, there's a little technique that many of you are familiar with. And here's the example that I gave you once before. Let's say that you're going to your office, and there are three things that you want to remember. One is that you want to make a phone call as soon as you get there. This is the most important thing. The second one is, let's say, um, that you want to make a note on your calendar. And let's say that the third is um, that you wish to put something in the out box. So in mnemonics, what you might do is you would put a number one on top of the telephone in your mind before you got to the office. You would picture a number one sitting right on top of the phone. And you would picture a number two on top of the calendar and a number three in the outbox. Now, you might have done that a day or two before you got to the office. Let's say it was a weekend. You walk in the office, and when your eyes happen to light on the phone, you see the one on top of it because that's what you have placed in your mind. The phone is in your mind, and the one is in your mind. And that's how that happens. And the two and the three. That is how simple healing is. You simply wrap a cloak of light around this person. And every time you remember the person, you see the cloak of light. At the present time... um, I'm working on a chronic uh, back problem that I've had. 
I have done everything overt that I know to do, aside from things that I would be afraid of doing, such as surgery and a few other things that I know I could try, but I don't want to try something that is fearful for me to try because fear is the problem. So all I would do is trade one problem for another if I fill my mind with fear and trying to get rid of another fear. And my back problem has lessened to a tremendous degree. It's, it's at a stage now where I could live with it, but I see no reason why I must live with it, and so now I'm going to a spiritual form of healing. And what I've done is I have filled that part of my back with light. Everything that I think about that part of my back, everything that I used to read about it and everything, the particular muscles and so forth, now have light within them and on them. And so when I think of my back, if there's a twinge back there or if I just happen to think of it or if I begin some task that in the past might have hurt my back, then I remember it in light. And that is how simple it can be. <clears throat> and it's perfectly all right for you to begin practicing that. If you understand that what you are doing is healing your mind and not healing your back, or your cold, or so-and-so's cancer. Because if you think that your purpose is to change something, then you will look at the something for confirmation as to how well you're doing. And how well you are doing depends solely on the amount of peace that you feel. Because that is what will bring you to the real world that we just read about. That's what will cause your awakening in God. Is the amount of peace you feel this instant. And so never make changing something your goal. Make changing the image of it in your mind from one of pain to one of peace, from one of fear to one of tranquility, your goal. All right, now, let me take a couple of the other questions that were written in, and then we'll, then if you have some things you'd like to talk about, we'll do that. There were, there were two that, that went sort of hand in hand. Um, one of them was the question about um, when I spoke about living with a, an, a drug addict or an assaulter, someone that beats you up, um, an active alcoholic, those kinds of situations. There are a number of different things like that. They are situations that most people could not live with in peace. But they are situations that at least in some of these cases can be lived with in peace. And so if that was not understood, I want to stress it now. Peace is the solution. If you can live with an active alcoholic in peace, the problem is solved and there's nothing you need to do about it. But most people can't do that. When I began my crisis work, 
and was on a crisis line. One of the first women that I counseled who was being beaten up was beaten up only once a year. And she was, had been beaten up once a year for as long as she could remember. And she did not want to leave her husband. And this was a real lesson to me. And as I listened to her, fortunately I had the sense to listen to her and watch her before I started spouting my opinions on the subject. I saw that all she wanted from me was to tell her it was all right. That she was not guilty. That she loved her family and that she did not want to take action against her husband. And so that's what I told her. Now, admittedly, there are very few people who could do that. But if you could do that, the problem would be solved. As a matter of fact, what I ended up telling her was, because I knew this is what she wanted me to hear. She had told me in a number of ways she wanted to hear this. And so I told her this. This is all you do in counseling is you see the way that the person is attempting to travel and you see that it is a good way, and you encourage them in it. You do not tell them what your way is. You see what their good way is, and you encourage them in it. I told her, I said, if you're, uh, I said, think back to the time which you were not married. Think how lonely you were. And then think of this man. And this particular man, uh, this woman happened to be, happened to live on one of the Indian Pueblos. And uh, her husband had uh, a very fine job. He, he had a very fine house. Um, he had um, many very sterling qualities. He's a very honest man. He was a very good father. I said, think back when you were lonely and think of this person. And ask yourself, do you believe that you are capable of having such a husband? And she said, no, I would never have thought I could have had someone like that. And I said, well, if you had gone to an agency and the agency had said this to you, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to give you a man who will provide you with a beautiful home and a great job and a steady income. He's going to be a great father. He's going to be honest. But once a year, someone from our organization is going to come out and beat you up. I said, would you have taken that deal? Oh, yes. Oh, I definitely would take the deal. And I said, what if there was a little provision there in the contract that you had an option? that instead of having a stranger beat you up, you could have your very own husband beat you. <laughs> she said, I'd take that. I'd take that option. I said, well, if you love him and you don't want to leave him, then that's just fine. You are innocent. And that's all she was asking. Am I innocent? Of course she was innocent. But most people can't do that. And so if you are in one of those very rare situations where something like that is going on and a person is calling to your ego over and over and over and over, this unrelenting call to your ego, 
And you see that you cannot withstand those calls that eventually you respond. And that this throws you back. Then it's always best to take some simple action. Just don't do more than's necessary. And don't tell yourself what it means. Don't tell yourself about the future implications. Because this is what keeps people from taking a simple action. Such as going into a safe house. Or going to a motel. Or whatever the thing may be. Because they think it has to mean something forever. It doesn't. Take some simple action. Now, if you are not living with someone that's in one of those very rare categories, and if you have not left them, then I can tell you that the chances are it is more peaceful for you to stay with them. If it were not more peaceful, you would have already left them. And the worst thing that you can do is to stay in a marriage or a relationship or a relationship in an office with an employer or to keep someone hired or to maintain a certain contact with a family member and at the same time continue to ask yourself over and over and over, am I making a mistake? What chance of happiness do you have? What chance of healing do you have? Be the very best employer, the very best employee, the very best relative, the very best spouse that you can possibly be, even if it's for only one day. Say, I will be the best husband or wife I can be for one day, and then I will ask myself, do I wish to leave this relationship? And after you have asked the question, get up and do what it is that you have decided to do, which is to be another good, to be a, a good spouse for another day, or for ten days this time, or to or to leave. But don't tell yourself what leaving means. Leaving means what? Does it mean going and staying with your mother for a while? Does it mean um, just moving out of the house for a while? Just do the simple thing that comes to you to do. And don't tell yourself what the implications are. Now, in connection with all this, it's very important to remember you must not abandon anyone. That is a truth. The higher ego steps in and says that means you must not leave them physically or step away from the relationship physically. And of course, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that as you step back physically in any way from any person, you must step up mentally. You must bless them more in your mind. You must know in your heart that you are still this person's friend. And there must be no question about that. And do not try to lessen your pain or your guilt by talking against this person to other people. Because it will do just the opposite. You will think of yourself as a betrayer, and you will be a betrayer if you do that. So you can step away from a relationship without betraying the person. Because this is temporary. Okay, so um, there are some other questions that people have written in, but I'll, I'll save those. Um, maybe we'll do one at the end.
So does anybody have anything they'd like to bring up? A question concerning the definition of the term ego. Yes. <clears throat> now, ego uh, is not a separate force. It's not something that's actually a part to us. But there is a part of our mind, although it is a very, very small part of our mind, that's completely crazy. So we are all crazy. And this has to be recognized. Before the craziness can be let go of, we have to see that we are, in fact, absolutely bonkers. And so our craziness I refer to is the ego. It's, I use the term the same way it's used in A Course, course in Miracles. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I'm going, to add, I'm going to continue your question just for a second. This John is my son. Um, he, uh, Gail and I have both been sick. He just got over uh, pneumonia. And uh, so we got him a little uh, doctor's kit, uh, you know, with the, with the little fake uh, things that you put over your ears, stethoscope and um, the thermometer and all that stuff. And so... Uh, he got home and he had to uh, get it out. And uh, Gail, at this point, is a little bit worse off than I am, and so he he put the thermometer in her mouth, told her she shouldn't be, and so he's waited there patiently for for it. Then he took it out, and she said, uh, well, "What what is what is it?" He said, "It's very serious." <laughs> he said, "You've swallowed a beaver." <laughs> and all the, uh, all this time I guess that he was hearing fever as a beaver you know he just thought adults had beavers you know and so uh, so <laughs> okay, remind me now again. What were we talking about? Oh, the ego. All right. So, the ego, um, one analogy that I like is to think of the ego as an imaginary playmate. Uh, it's like an imaginary playmate. So many of you can remember having had an imaginary playmate, or you can remember your child having had one. And you know that uh, this is very real to the child. What the imaginary playmate says surprises the child, even though the child told the imaginary playmate to say that. Its, its behavior is a constant source of amusement and surprise to the child, although the child is manufacturing it. And it seems quite real. Now, how does the child let go of an imaginary playmate? by developing an interest in real companionship, not by fighting the imaginary playmate. If he were tried to try to get rid of the imaginary playmate, it would make him make it more real. And so a good parent never tells uh, the child that there is no imaginary playmate and so forth. And they've got to stop this because that, of course, just intensifies the whole illusion an ego is an imaginary identity. 
That's all it is. And we have established an identity in this world. You think you were born one place and that you will be buried another place or however else you... There's so many wonderful ways to go now. You can be dropped off ships and all kinds of things. So, it'll, you know, one... And then this, 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 this personality that you have constructed, these little goodies that you started life with, your little bag of goodies, you see, like the straight teeth, uh, the flawless complexion, and so forth, but your shoulders drooped. And uh, your feet stank. But there were things you could do about that. And so you had you had your little bag of goodies, and you had the things you started with, and then you added to them. You know, you got the uh, shining degree that you put in there. Maybe you're now doctor so-and-so. And uh, you got, not that that's the only reason for your doing it. I'm talking about on an ego level. There's a very good reasons, of course, to get... Uh, become an MD or PhD, but on an ego level, this is what we do, and you get the uh, very attractive spouse, and you get the uh, whatever it is you can put in the bag, you see, as many friends as you can have, and all, so forth, but of course, at the same time, life is taking out the goodies as fast as you can put them in, as a matter of fact, life is taking them out a little faster than you can put them in, and this is a very depressing process. <laughs> Um, so this is the imaginary identity. This is what we think is important. This is what we think our life is. This whole struggle to uh, stave off aging, to uh, somehow hold on to uh, the few friends that we've got, to somehow protect our popularity and our respectability, uh, to get to the top of our profession, or at least to maintain the position that we've arrived at. And it's very sad, isn't it? Because it all fades even as we fight to hold it. And yet we think this is all there is to us. This little body that wanders on the earth, misunderstood, quite alone even if we're living with someone, not fully understood, cut off. And the only thing we can count on is our utter and complete destruction. That is the ego. That is our insanity that that is all we are. And so the opposite of the ego might be called the heart. And the heart is, of course, the far greater part of your mind, even though at this time, most of you may be focusing almost completely on the little teeny part that's the ego. And all of your happiness comes from what's happening to the ego. And all of your sadness comes from what's happening to the ego. But gradually you begin to look in your heart. And you ask your heart, what do you want to do? You ask your heart, what do you think about this person? You ask your heart, how do you wish to spend this day? Rather than ask your ego, how do you wish to spend your life? <laughs> and at first you simply notice that it's more fun. To be happy, kind of like it. It's it's you like you prefer going through the day in relative peace than in conflict and war and gossiping and worrying and all this stuff, you know. But you have opened a door when you begin to look in your heart 
because eventually you will discover that you are a different self. You are a being of light. You are a manifestation of truth. You are, A Course in Miracles says, the home of God. Because you are one with all there is. And this, I promise you, will eventually become more real to you than your ego. But the transitional period can be pretty rough. Because we go back and forth and we lose ground and we, and we forget to forgive people and forget to be kind. And we think we know what to do. We, we forget to ask for help and to be gentle. And we go back and forth. It's not that the way home is hard, but we make it hard because we're so conflicted about continuing. And, we, and we're so appalled that, that we were wrong. We're insulted, in fact. That we have been that we've been running after all these things that have no value. The job means nothing. And so now we think the farm will mean something. Living in the country will mean something. And then of course it doesn't mean anything either. It, 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 so and we just can't believe how could I have thought for 20, 30, 40, 50 years? that so-and-so would make me happy. And there's nothing there. And so we it's almost as if we try to make it valuable. We dive back into it over and over again, say, surely I couldn't have been wrong about this. Okay, is there another question? So the question is, if you happen to live, be living with someone who is calling to your ego in some very... Uh, strong way over and over again such as someone who who's having affair after affair after affair in some very unhappy way for you uh, or as an alcoholic or as a batterer or all these other things that we've mentioned um, and if you see that you would be more peaceful uh, stepping away from that relationship now it's very good uh, not to tell yourself I'm going to get a divorce just tell yourself, I'm going to go see the attorney. Take that step in peace. Then see what you want to do next. Don't, because if you start asking myself, should I divorce this person? There is no answer to that question because there's so many steps involved in a divorce. All you need to know is, do I wish to take the first step? Take it and then see what the effect is. Now the question is, how do you separate yourself? Because sometimes these people don't want to be separated from. Um, it is quite easy to separate yourself from anyone if you will allow yourself any option. Now, what we do is we allow ourselves such few options that we make the situation impossible. There's no way we can uh, do the thing that would bring peace to this relationship. So this, of course, applies not only to these extreme examples, but this applies to everything. People on a spiritual path, for example, uh, an illness, write off whole series of things that they're not supposed to do. Many people on a spiritual path think they're not supposed to go to an MD. Well, this is absolutely insane. Why do you cut yourself off from that option? You do whatever you, you need to do to bring peace 
to your body if you see that your body is keeping you from turning to God. And so if you if it requires surgery and it's more peaceful to have the surgery, of course you have the surgery because it will be more peaceful. That's why. And likewise, if you wish to separate yourself from someone, if you are to allow yourself any option, of course you could do that. You could have your phone changed. <clears throat> you could move your residence. You could move your location. You could move to another city and not tell anybody where you're going. You could do a hundred things. If you were to sit down and allow yourself any option, you could write out a hundred ways of solving this problem. The reason that you can't think of anything is that you've narrowed, narrowed your options to so few that now you really have no choice. This world is an illusion. Short of hurting another person, there is nothing in this world you can't do. You need do nothing, says A Course in Miracles. There isn't any behavior that's sacrosanct. Provided you're not hurting someone, allow yourself any option. And by hurting them, I mean in an overt way, not in some sort of mental, con con uh, confused, convoluted uh, way that you say, well, by... Uh, doing this, I'm going to hurt their feelings, and this is going to make them suicidal. You don't know any of that stuff. Don't you seek revenge. That's what it means. Don't you overtly go out and try to make someone unhappy or feel bad. Now, if you will just eliminate that, which eliminates almost nothing, you, there's, there's very few options that you would even wish to consider anyway that fall into that category of deliberately hurting someone, then there is no limit to the ways you can walk around a problem. What you don't want to do is scatter your efforts among a thousand solutions. So don't try this and try that and all this stuff. Sit down, look in your heart, and say, what do I want to do? Don't be afraid of that question. What do I want to do about this situation? And in peace, you will see something simple to do. Do it and do not reconsider. Don't reconsider. Because it occurred to you in peace. Then if it's, it appears after you've done it, or after you're underway with your, with your program, if it's obviously not working, then you can reconsider it. But don't reconsider it on some grounds of uh, guilt or that kind of thing. Don't worry. Worry is of the ego. Peace is of God. It is all right to be certain, and in fact, you must act as if you are certain. You don't act as if you're arrogant, but you must act as if you are certain before you will become what the Course in Miracles calls a higher teacher. This is what Mother Teresa did. Mother Teresa began acting like a saint, not as a holy, holier-than-thou kind of person, but she began acting as if she was certain of what she was doing because she knew that in her heart she wished to be and do good. And so in the very early days, she, she acted with great authority. She was very gentle. 
and she, she did not run over anyone, and she was never arrogant, and she was not firm in the way the ego thinks of firmness, which is to be sort of angry and belligerent and so forth. But she was truly firm. She said to herself, I want Christ. And this is the way I believe I can have Christ in my heart and I can bring Christ to others. And so this is what I will do, although it seemed impossible that she could do what she set out to do. And then, with certainty, which at, in the beginning was merely an attempted certainty, followed true certainty. And this is what you must do. You must act as if you know the truth. You must not be afraid to be truly holy. You must act as if God holds your hand and you must trust your peace and not your worry. And so if you sit in peace and you see this is a step you want to take, do not reconsider it for the sake of God, for the sake of your way home. Do not reconsider it. And then if it doesn't work, if the results are not what you expected, then, of course, you can sit down and try something else. Don't be afraid to try a number of things. The first thing does not have to work. This is why I urge people not to try to cultivate some sort of voice as guidance. Because if they hear, go to Motel 6. <laughs> and then they get to Motel 6 and there's no, you know, it's all filled up. <laughs> now, where are you left? Didn't God know that Motel 6 was filled up? You see, this is silly stuff. So don't, don't cultivate that. Peace is your guidance. Love is your guidance. Kindness, your will to be and do good, is your guidance. Trust it. It's just a suggestion. Don't ask yourself why I felt like doing that. You felt like doing it because it was a peaceful idea and you tried it and so now you're willing to try something else. If, you will, if you're willing to keep trying and to do one thing at a time, you will get around any problem. And remember, to get around a problem doesn't mean that it changes in the way that the ego thinks that it ought to change. So, for example, the, the, the greatest healer that I have personally ever known I've told you about. Her name was Mrs. Fulton. She lived in Dallas, Texas. It's possible that there's someone that she did not heal. That's probably probable that there are people she did not heal. But every person that I know went to her, no matter what their problem was, and everything I went to her with, and I went to her with a broken leg twice, other kinds of problems, she healed everyone within minutes. And she didn't say anything. She just closed her eyes and she said that, that uh, prayer that I've quoted to you. She just said that prayer. I am one with thee, O thou infinite one. I am where thou art. I am what thou art. I am because thou art. And you would be well. 
And so you didn't go to Mrs. Fulton if you didn't want to be well. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, when you're a young kid, you sometimes want to wear the cast for a while and have people autographing stuff like that. So, um, But Mrs. Fulton had arthritis very badly, and she had one eye that wouldn't open. And she didn't care beans about it. And I doubt if she spent any time at all about it. She had the arthritis. I'm sure she had the pain from the arthritis. But for Mrs. Fulton, it didn't matter. Now, for many people, it would matter and would have to be handled in some way. She had solved the problem because she could continue her walk home. And so, the arthritis didn't need to be taken care of. Nothing in this world has to be taken care of. All that has to be done is that you must continue your walk home. And don't torture yourself by falling backwards. Keep your walk going. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. A question concerning what one can do about anger. Okay, I'm so glad you brought that up. That's also one of the questions that I didn't get to. Um, so let's talk about, that's a real good one. And it's a problem that all of us have, even if you're not aware of it, I can tell you that you are still getting angry. If you are not aware of it, then you haven't taken the first step, which is to become aware of it. Uh, it may be that you're not acting it out, and of course it's best not to act out anger because this complicates the situation. But if you don't act it out and you're not even aware of it, then of course you have repressed and no, no progress can be made. So we must become aware of our anger, and as best we can, not make the situation more complicated by acting it out. But what do you do? What is the first step in eliminating the anger? Well, you, f you have to understand that you are going to get angry. As long as you have an ego, until you have become stronger than your ego... Now, this sounds like you've got separate forces, but in the sense that you are more certain of who you are than what you thought you were. When your ego has, has, has become weak enough, then you have transcended your ego and you operate for a while, although a relatively short while, with... Uh, without ego, in the sense that you operate uh, what you might call, say, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So you, you act under the influence of your true and deeper self. But that period in which you are on earth, and that has happened, you still do have some ego, although at that stage it's very, very weak. So Mother Teresa is, of course, an example at this point, at this particular stage. Her ego is so weak that, of course, she operates now purely from the voice of Christ within her, and she does not respond to her ego. Dr. Sham is someone who is uh, almost at that stage. Um, now, um, so obviously we haven't reached that stage. I have not reached that stage. I still get angry. I get angry far less, and I re recognize it far more quickly. And I, and I almost never act it out. 
any longer. But I am, if anything, more aware of any tinge of anger within me because I do not wish anger within me. I want my heart to be pure, and I want to respond to everyone with healing, and attacking never helps anyone. And so I don't want to feel attack in any way. And that is possible, because in my heart I know there is no attack. So how do you eliminate anger? Well, I can tell you what you must do. You first of all have to become more aware of it, so you've got to look at it. You've got to look not at the only the big form of anger that's distressing you, the occasional outburst that you think is an aberration, because it is not an aberration. It's just more of the same that's going on, and you're not aware of the, the part that's going on. So you must first become aware of it. And secondly, you must see it coming. Now, this is the, the very important stage, and most of you are at this point. Most of you are aware of your anger to some degree, and many of you to, to quite a full degree. But the mistake you're making is you're letting the anger get out of hand. So what you must understand is that the anger comes and you head toward the anger. And the mistake you're making is you try to do something about it when it's too late. You've gone beyond the point where you can now handle it. This takes increased awareness. You must watch how the anger builds up. Because the higher ego will come in, higher ego, by higher ego, I simply mean that as we take up a spiritual path, our ego begins quoting truth in order to cause discord. <laughs> so in the name of truth, our ego will tell us, oh, well, but you're beyond all this, and this, this situation shouldn't be bothering you at all. Of course it is bothering you, and it is building up, and you aren't letting go of it. And so you stay in a situation too long. So you have to get to know yourself. How do you operate? How do you personally get in trouble? How do these things come about? And then you must catch it before it gets out of hand. So you can let it go a little ways, and it's good to let it go just a little ways to see if you can't go ahead and dismiss it, see if you can stay in the situation, but be very honest with yourself. Now, what you must do is look at the situation very carefully, and then you see that you're trying to stay in it. And uh, let's say someone is denouncing one of your friends. Now, they don't realize it, but of course they're trying to poison your mind against the individual. All gossip is an attempt to poison one person's mind against another person's mind. But most people are completely unaware of this. They think it's, it's an attempt to get close to you. So they're bringing up this wonderful, titillating thing to talk about. So, of course, you don't condemn them for doing this. They obviously don't know what they're doing. And you don't know what you're doing if you happen to fall into it. You've forgotten. But that's all it is. All right, so, of course, the person is trying to poison your mind. And, and if the poison begins to take, then you will begin to lose your peace. But, of course, you also know that there have been occasions when you can listen to gossip and you're at a state of peace. You're strong enough at the moment that this really is not, your heart is not in getting involved in this. And so, out of kindness, you stay there. But the kindness ceases if it begins to get to you. You're not being kind any longer if this begins to get to you, whatever the thing is. 
Maybe it's a situation that's called calling to your ego. Maybe you're in a very chaotic situation where there's a great deal of clamor and noise and all kinds of things like that. And it's getting to you. And your higher ego comes in and says, well, out of kindness, you can't leave. Look at all the trouble these people have gone to. Or this person won't understand. Or you should be beyond all of this. And so the honesty comes in and you say, no, I'm losing it. And I must act now before it gets out of hand. Because I tell you people, when it gets out of hand, you lose ground. It is, this is, you, you actually go back a few steps. And that means you're going to have to retrace some of your steps. Why do this to yourself? Walk straight to God. Don't take thousands of years to do this. And so, what do you do? The basic, most fundamental thing, the greatest tool in your problem-solving repertoire is knowing that you can break with a situation and break with it. Manufacture an emergency if you have to. Oh, I just had a vision that my mother's leg is coming off again. We've had such a problem with it. Whatever the thing is, you see. She's got loose joints and it just drops off. In my it doesn't matter. Often, oftentimes, you don't have to uh, say anything. You don't have to make up a story. Almost all cases, if you just say, uh, excuse me, I, I, if you're on the phone, excuse me, just a minute. People don't even ask you why you had to get off the phone. Uh, oh, I just remembered something. And you leave. Because <laughs> you did just remember something. You remembered that peace is more important than appearances. And the ego is simply trying to get you to say that appearances are all important. And it's better to appear to be peaceful than it is to be peaceful. And the ego says that when you pause and turn to God, you look as if you're hesitant. We, uh, we did a wedding yesterday. Those of you who know Touch and Rose uh, got married yesterday. And John Huntress uh, composed a song for them. He just finished the song just before the service and uh, actually played it for the first time during the service. And it was so uh, touching that I asked him if he would do it for you this morning, especially since we've just finished these last four Sundays on the marriage vows. I wish when you listen to this song that you would not think of another body as that with which you need to join, but think of your best friend who is with you. Think of this one who watches over you, that loves you so completely. This is the one with whom you wish to join, and perhaps you will see it in the one that you live with. 